Welcome to Core Values, the Religion and Humanities podcast, produced by the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities at California State University, Chico. I'm your host, Daniel Weidlinger. Our theme for this semester will be religion and health, inspired, of course, by the pandemic that we are all undergoing. We'll have a number of guests come to talk to us about their work as it relates to this topic. I am talking today to Sarah Ganabin, who is a professor in our department, and she actually went to Chico State herself as a student and was a religious studies major. And it's really exciting to have her on faculty now and to see the cycle of life come full circle, where she's back teaching our courses. The main courses that she has been teaching are Death, Dying, and the Afterlife, which is a perennially popular course that we have, and also Women in Religion. She went to the Pacific School of Religion, which is part of the Graduate Theological Union, and she studied psychology and religion and got both an MA and a Master's of Divinity. So, Sarah, could you just talk a little bit about what a Master's of Divinity exactly is? It is an epic title, the Master of Divinity. Yes, I love the name. And this is for people who are studying um, within some sort of divinity field. And a lot of times that just means it's the same degree that most priests will get in order to be ordained. You have to do a lot more than get that degree to be ordained. But the MDiv, the Masters of Divinity, this is what most priests get. It's actually a good thing for listeners to know a little bit about this. Like, how do you actually become a religious professionals, such as a rabbi or a priest or an imam, usually the different religions have their own theological schools. And in general, in the Western world, it's a two-year degree. I think a rabbi, rabbinical degree is also standardly a two-year graduate degree, a master's level degree. And of course, you can go on to further study after that if you want to get yet more degrees. So today we're going to be talking about religion and spirituality, and the role that it plays in the healthcare system. Because we are living in what is truly a biblical pestilence. You know, it's amazing. A year ago, if somebody had told me that the whole world would be brought to its knees by some little virus that started with a few people, you know, went to, I guess, some fish market in China, and then they didn't feel well. And then a few weeks later, the whole world is brought to its knees. Every bank, every theater in India, in Brazil, in England, in America, closed. You can't make this thing up, you know? It's amazing. I've always said one of my mottos is that real life is stranger than fiction. And, you know, everything I witness from the political situation to the now health situation just reinforces that belief, that things happen in the world, that if you wrote it into a book, people would say, eh, you know, this is just too far-fetched. So because of what's going on with the pandemic and COVID-19, I thought that we would start with you talking a little bit about your experiences as a chaplain and your knowledge of health, religion, and also of death and dying practices. And you could talk a little bit about from both your personal experience and your academic knowledge about these uh, subjects. So 
Let's tell, why don't we start by you saying a little bit about your chaplaincy work that you've done in the past, when before the COVID times. Just tell us a little bit about what it even means to be a chaplain. I know that many people, including myself, kind of learned about what a chaplain is from watching the show MASH, where you had uh, Father Mulcahy being the chaplain, right? I mean, that is the way many people learned about this thing called a chaplain. So could you tell us a little bit about what it is to be a chaplain and then about your own personal experience as a chaplain? Um, so a chaplain typically works in some sort of institution. So you might see an army chaplain, yes, a military chaplain, or you might see a hospital chaplain, which is one of the chaplaincies that I did. Uh, you might even see a college chaplain, depending on the institution. The hope is that a chaplain can show up for people within that institution as a support who is also knowledgeable about spirituality. Let's talk a little bit about the situation nowadays. So we have the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a situation in which there's a contagious disease that is potentially fatal to us, a significant proportion of the population, one or 2%, whatever it may be. But that's dangerous enough that as I'm sure all the listeners know, it is severely restricting the uh, visiting policies of various hospitals. And many of them, in fact, they don't really let visitors come at all. So now we have a situation in which somebody is maybe gravely ill and they're not allowed to have their friends and family come to visit them. So how have you seen that affecting or heard stories about that affecting people's emotional state? One of the things that, especially if you're talking from a chaplaincy perspective, has to do with uh, dying alone. There's not so much worry around the PPE, the protective gear, because that's always been a part of it. We've always had to, you know, don up. Yeah, scrub and, in, as they call it. Uh, yeah, and put on masks and put on gloves. And there are always people in the hospital that we're charged with seeing sometimes that have pretty contagious, yeah, contagious diseases. Right, yeah. yeah, that's a good but point. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to go in their room. They're probably right. very scared. So we're kind of used to working through that bit. That's mm -hmm. not the biggest bit is the mask, but then not being able to be in the room is actually pretty huge. So for many people, even if it's just a, a chaplain, say, who works in the situation, while we're very careful, there is also a moment of humanity that can be really helpful to people. Uh, when right. I worked in hospice, especially, there was a patient that she was indeed nearing the end of her life and people were quite careful to not touch her. And that means that she had not received any kind of uh, loving touch at all for a really long time. And I was as careful as I could be, I suppose, under the circumstances. But I took off one glove and set my hand on her hand and she was nonverbal, but she cried. There was oh. something quite visceral about right. receiving just the smallest amount of caring touch. I was fine. I washed up. I did, you know, I made sure everything was all right. I have cream. Right. Okay. So everything worked out fine. Right. My thinking is having that story in my head means that there are a lot of people out there who just, their only job is to provide care and they cannot. But we also need to think about the fact that it's not just chaplains. These are family members, right? It's, it's um, family can't come in. So when I think about the times that I talked to a mother who knew that her child was dying, it is one of the most difficult things. And that in itself would be enough to 
Try and imagine speaking with a mother who knew her child was dying and knew that she could not go in and touch that. So scared and not being able to be in the presence of your, of your parents. So this is, you know, it's one thing from a chaplaincy to say we can't help, but it's another to really consider what it is to die alone as real people. And I think that is some of what's coming to head. The stories that we're hearing is that it is very difficult to face dying alone in that particular way. This is a good time to make a little shout out to the doctors and nurses and all the healthcare workers who are at the front lines against this terrible disease. We really have to take our hats off to them and thank them for all the hard work they've done to keep us safe. And then as far as doctors go, they're the ones that are, and the nurses obviously, and respiratory specialists, those are the ones that are exposed the most. So I think about, I mean, real life situations in a hospital, there might be an elderly person who has COVID and that is likely the thing that is going to take their life. If they are coding, which is right, they're imminent, typically under any other circumstance, people would go in with a crash cart and attempt to resuscitate them. And whether or not that works, oddly enough, it can be really comforting for a family member to see that. Now, um, doctors and nurses and respiratory specialists are putting themselves at risk, the most risk, if they go in there and try and attempt to resuscitate this person. If they know, because perhaps they're elderly, um, that their chances of being resuscitated to any kind of health are very slim. But there is, they say, the son of that elderly person saying, please, please go in there. She's crashing, right? You know, please, please go in there. These are the doctors having to look at the at this person and say, it's not worth the risk. Difficult decisions to make, for sure. Have you ever been involved in mediating between families and doctors where the family has some ritual or custom that they want to be respected and the doctor doesn't know or doesn't care about it? Oh, all the time. So often. Yeah, I mean, anything from uh, traditions in which every single person from the family, far and wide, needs to come and see the person as they die or just moments after their death. And so that means they are dying in the hospital. People will be coming as quickly as they can to see this person. But if they die, the family would prefer they not be moved until everybody has come in from L.A. To see the body on the deathbed. Right. Uh, Even after they have died, it's very important. And nurses have their protocol. But when someone has died, they need to initiate certain things and then they have a timeline that they need to follow to get the body taken care of. Now that can be to the morgue, that depends on what's going on. So yeah, I'd have to go back and forth and sort of tell the family, okay, well, we only have this much time. Do you think so-and-so will get here on time? Go back to the nurse and say, all right, well, they're requesting this much time. Can't we at least get them perhaps one more half hour? Yeah, I can totally see that a cultural specialist such as yourself can be invaluable in situations like this. There's probably lots of other situations where somebody with knowledge of different rituals and practices from around the world can be really helpful in these situations. There's a lot of things that are difficult in the hospital, no fire. And so any religious tradition that involves a candle. That wouldn't be allowed. Mm-mm. Are they allowed to light incense? Probably not. Not at all. No, right. no nothing. Right. And that's a lot of religious ritual. Yes. That- 
involves incense or fire or candles or something like that, which mm -hmm. aren't allowed to be done there. So I suppose in some traditions, do you find that people would prefer not to die in a hospital and they'd rather die at home so that these rituals can be done? I would say statistically, uh, certainly. In the U.S., most people would prefer to die at home. The research bears that out, just self-reporting. Uh -huh. um, statistically, more than half of us will die in a hospital. So, right, that's more than, so most of people in modern-day America die in a hospital. Right. And most of us report not wanting that. So I, I think that's see. that is stats to look at. Well, right. That's a big problem with medicine in general. There's a lot of things that people don't want, but the medical apparatus just goes ahead and does it anyway. And there's a lack of understanding. Doctors are, uh, they move fast. They're quite busy. Yes. They use terms that most of us don't understand and their explanations can be quite convoluted. I think right. that some patients will say yes uh, because we trust doctors. Well, we didn't understand, but we trust. Also, there's a lot of misunderstanding in, in our death ways, just in our funeral industry and the way that we die. If you die in the hospital, we have no idea what the legality is of simply taking so the body of a loved one home. But there's there's legalities around that, right? The right, you can't just take the body then. out, pull up your car and put the body in. You no, know, it depends, actually. Yeah, in some states, yes, as long oh, as you paperwork and everything. Right. In order, right? Yeah, the hospital does not own your loved one. No, I uh, see. And so, technically, yes, you can. Even with hospice at home, which means that somebody has been given a six month or less diagnosis, they have been sent home from the hospital, and everybody is aware that they're hoping to take their last breaths at home. Right. It can be really scary for a family member to watch someone go through the dying process. So, what happens a lot is a a family member will call an ambulance or something and yes. have them rush to the hospital because it's sort of, um, I don't want to say it's a knee-jerk reaction, but it's certainly something that we see happen a lot because it's really difficult to right, resist to just, the urge to drive someone, to get someone to the yes. hospital if they are struggling. Many family members who are acting as caregivers might not really know how to handle death as it approaches. So I'm wondering if there are resources to help prepare them for it and to explain to them what to expect. Briefly, you know, if you're on hospice, hopefully you have a chaplain who, who can show up and sort of help you through that process and affirm for you that it is difficult when someone you love is struggling and, and to, again, be with you right. while you feel those feelings. So instead of sending to them the hospital because they didn't want that, instead help the family member through that process. To be there at the moment of death must be a very disorienting experience. To see a body alive one moment, and then something changes, and suddenly it enters a state that we call dead. It still physically is there, the chemicals in the body are more or less the same as they were, but it has entered a new state. And I suppose you have actually been there to see life end on a number of occasions. And that must be difficult. Yeah. And, you know, they're all different. Certainly, right. we, all, we all get our own death. Yes. Um, right. As I hear you describe it, yeah, certainly there's, there's a, a, a sense that is different between someone who is distinctly alive and someone who has already had their last breath. Yeah. Right. There is a, a, a real difference. And it's palpable and yet very hard to describe. It's part of the reason I think that people, a lot of people, not everyone, um, finds closure 
in seeing somebody once they have passed because it is so clearly not the person that they remember. A lot of people report, you know, when they do see the body, that it just doesn't seem like the person, even though it looks like the person. It's a kind of doppelganger or something. There's something missing. It's not really the person. It's right. just their body. So it makes it easier, I think, for some people to say, well, wherever they are, it's, it's not here and we can move on from that reality yes, forward, right. whatever that might be. Right. But I think, too, honestly, one thing that we do in our death ways that might not be helpful is I think that we do sort of romanticize the last moments of death, I think, because we don't see people die very often in our society currently. Um, but what we have is, is maybe a movie version that sometimes it. And that line is not distinct, that sometimes the breaths come and go and they stop. And then there's another breath, a struggled breath, and, and maybe a few more minutes where the body is still clearly moving. So it sometimes is not a distinct moment. And what, what really interests me and got me working there was, I mean, I think of death and I think, okay, well, if your brain isn't working and your heart isn't working, <laughs> you are officially dead. But we have machines now that can hook up and see what's going on in your heart or your brain. And now we know that you might have some brain activity, but no brain function. I think that's called being a politician. And perhaps your heart has um, a pulse, but no rhythm. At that point, I don't know if you're alive or dead because things have gotten too nuanced and I don't understand science in this way. <laughs> and so when doctors would say this person is indeed dead, yes? But right. they're hooked to a machine that indicates activity. It's very confusing. To us, that would seem to say something is occurring. Doctors seem to have a different opinion. And, and so I was struck by uh, how fuzzy that line is between alive and dead. Right. It's just like, I mean, this is one of the things that in academia we talk about a lot, are just lines between one state and another. And, you know, the answer is always the same, that whenever you try to make strict lines, there's always cases in which it gets blurred, right? That goes for anything, you know, what's a language versus what's a dialect, what's a religion and what's not a religion, right? So you have things that everybody agrees are religions, like Judaism and Christianity. Then you have things that some people feel are, right? There's no solid line. Is, you know, golf a kind of religion or not? Well, some people say it. So you have a similar thing with dying. We know that there are some things that are just dead, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln, everybody would agree he is dead. And hopefully you and I, everybody would agree, are alive. But then there's a number of cases in between those two that there is some disagreement about it. Monty Python perhaps captured this best in their depiction of life during the Black Death. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. So have you ever met with individuals who had been, in some sense, pronounced dead and then came back in one way or another? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, some people have very distinct memories. And did they, they talk about what happened after, uh, during the period that they were dead? Like, have you spoken personally? I mean, I've read lots of 
reports, but I've never actually met somebody who claims to have at one point been so-called dead. Uh, yeah, a couple times in, in, in immediacy when I was speaking with somebody who was in the hospital because of what had happened and, you know, they declared me dead. Right. Uh, right. So I wanted to speak with somebody because that can be, that can trigger an existential crisis for sure. Yeah, I'll bet. So a couple times and, and there's varying counts. There everything from um, there is a light and heaven and peace and something beautiful mm-hmm. uh, to I remember nothing was out i was out for 30 days as far as i know it was yesterday where maybe they were considered clinically dead for some of that time and there's no they didn't hear anybody they didn't have any right. vision completely nothing mm-hmm. um i would like to say something about the near-death experience i guess i'll just call it a rainbow the first time i was put under anesthetic was when i had my wisdom teeth out unfortunately they took all of them out so i don't have much wisdom left but i was i about 20 years old and i went fully under a general anesthetic, and they took my wisdom teeth out. And when I woke, I just, it seemed like I had just fallen asleep. Like all I remembered was, you know, sort of falling asleep and then waking up. I didn't remember anything whatsoever during that 30 or 40 minutes that I was fully under. And then I remember later that night when I was sort of lying around in bed in pain, I thought that, well, wait a minute, if I was perfectly alive, but wasn't conscious of anything whatsoever. I didn't feel, smell, hear, nothing. Let's say, God forbid, I had died during the procedure. It just seemed a little odd to me that I'm perfectly alive, but yet experienced nothing. And if I had died, somehow I would have then had more experience and I would have seen a light in a tunnel or something. And it just struck me that that was one time when I started to doubt that maybe there is anything that happens after we die, simply because, you know, if I was alive and there was nothing going on, how could it be that I'm like dead, which is much worse than being alive, but yet more experience would happen, you know what I mean? So did you find that patients have existential questions like this when they are terribly ill in the hospitals? They, they have, the patients have more of a question, the Harold Kushner question, right? Why would bad things happen to good people? That was the question. That was what they wanted to talk about. Uh-huh. If they had experienced death, you know, near-death experience, doesn't matter. That was their thing. And they were talking about themselves in particular, like, why is this stuff happening to me when I think that I'm a good person? Or their family member who is suffering, you know, they take me aside. and. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. So Why would and, this happen to them? Uh-huh. And was there any particular answers that, that stuck with you? that you might have given or that they might have come up with themselves when you were discussing this issue of why bad things are happening when they are good people? There's a lot of answers to that. In the moment as a chaplain, when someone asks that question, I imagine it as a Job style lament. I imagine that they're not asking me for an answer, no. That when they say, why is this happening to me? It's because they need to say that out loud to someone who won't judge them. So when I think of the patients who have said, why is this happening to me? Or why would this happen to such a beautiful person? Why them? That they weren't looking for, well, what Job's friends did in the story, (laughs) would give theological answers about why God would do this. That no, instead they're asking that question because they have to say it out loud. And all I have to do is listen. I'm thinking, you know, there's that saying that there's no atheists on a sinking ship. 
So I'm wondering during a pandemic or when people are gravely ill in the hospital, do they tend to believe more strongly in God than they would have otherwise? Maybe just because they hope that there is a God who can help them out of this predicament. Um, certainly not everyone believes in the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God with a good plan. Um, and there's a lot of religious traditions, I mean, religious traditions, modern paganism, for example. There's a lot of people within there that would say, well, we suffer here, death and, and all of the suffering, because we are soft, full of feelings and, and blood, and we live in a world that is full of sharp, pokey things. That is why. Um, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, necessarily if it relates to God or not. It's an existential question. Um, and I think COVID is, is actually important in this way because COVID asks us to wrestle with the existential crisis of mortality. We have to face it. You know, how do we continue to exist knowing in general and during COVID that our loved ones will experience suffering and in the end, we will die. Um, can we find meaning, right? Even in the midst of unreasonable suffering. I would say the point is on the whole, many humans, not everybody, certainly, but many humans find some peace uh, or hope in the notion that there is inherent purpose or meaning to our suffering, uh, to our life and our ultimate death. That's why I look at it ultimately as when we ask this question, why is this happening to me? It has to do with how we see each other in relationship and our relationship to the divine. We have to ask ourselves in these times if we honestly think that the divine likes us better than other people. You know, would we be safe <laughs> um, when we ask why would God do this to us? That is a little bit of that notion, right? Like God is doing it to you. Within COVID, as a sinking ship, if you want to say there's no atheist, I would say instead that COVID amplifies our core values and it heightens our blame responses. And both wow. of those are survival mechanisms. So I think about even, you know, atheists or nihilists, that they're bound to have their core values, whatever they are, amplified as a survival mechanism. But I'm really interested to see how getting sick in this way has brought out uh, politics and brought out our, again, it's our core values, isn't it? Perhaps it's politics, it could be religion, any right. number of things, the way that this has brought out uh, our fundamentals and made them so firm. Absolutely. It certainly has done that. That when you're living in difficult times, you just have to, grow. yeah, it's maybe not, it might not be religion per se, but some sort of ideology you grab onto and it gets strengthened because you have to have something solid to give you guidance. So if it's not the usual things in life, then it has to be some sort of intellectual edifice that you can build up in your mind and grab onto that. And people are just digging in and we can see that happening all around us for sure. And right. it's, you know, in some ways good in the sense that people should think about their core ideas, their core values and, um, you know, live their lives in accordance with them, I think it's to some extent, but when it becomes completely inflexible, obviously, that's a problem. That it probably is a lot of what we're seeing, right? Is that finding those core values actually could be a really valuable exercise, certainly. But yes. understanding that we each, all of us, have those core values and they are inevitably different 
means that some level of flexibility needs to occur. We're going to get through this together. The core values that we stand on are simply going to be there. Mm -hmm. So if we're not able to meet each other upon those core values, it's going to be really difficult. And they're, they're again kind of backed up with that blaming that we really don't want to die. And so anytime somebody dies, we need to know we would never be in that situation and therefore never risk death. Right? So we blame so easily. We need to know, ah, it's because they did this one particular thing. They acted in this way because right. they were this way. They got COVID. Yes. If I don't do that, I won't get it. And it's just a survival mechanism. We want to assure ourselves at least momentarily. Absolutely. That we never put ourselves in a situation where we would get sick and die in this. Of course. I always, when I hear about people randomly dying, I always try to think, well, what did they do that I am not doing to differentiate yourself from them? Because we definitely don't want to die. Me in particular. Like I have told my wife that if anything should happen, just resuscitate as many times as necessary. You know, I'm one of those people who just does not come to terms with my death, but some people do. So the last thing I want to say is I've always wondered, soldiers, how do they go to sleep at night waiting for the event? Like they, let's say they're in an encampment and the battle plans are all laid out and they know on such and such a day they're going to march forward into battle. And the few days leading up to that, they're kind of eating and sleeping, just knowing that they're going to be in battle a few days later. I just can't imagine how people put themselves in that situation. Do you have any insight into that? I have talked about this, yes, with people who have been in the military and faced those situations. So I can reflect some of the things that, that were meaningful to me. Um, a couple people who have come back from those scenarios, and when I have questioned them about what it's like to move forward, knowing that at any given point in time, that might be your last moment, right? How do you eat? How do you right. sleep? The anxiety must be so high. The right. sentiment, I'll say two times, both times that had struck me was, you are in exactly that position today, ma'am. That one, that one. Still, yes, you, every day. Every human walking around here is in that position because I could have an aneurysm right now. Uh, that tomorrow I could get hit by a car or fall down wrong. No matter what, no matter what human you are, you are in the scenario in which you are a moment away from death as far as you know. So we like to walk around and pretend it's not so. And they are in a position in which they simply cannot. Well, Sarah Gagnabin, thank you so much for spending this time with us and giving us all this amazing insight into death and dying and disease from your experience. You're quite welcome. It was a lot of fun talking to you about all of this. Yeah, I, I really, I guess I could say enjoyed it. I, I didn't think I would use the word enjoy to describe talking about death and dying, but I really did enjoy this, and I uh, thank you again. If you'd like to learn more about the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities, please go to our website at csuchico.edu slash c-o-r-h. That's 
C-S-U-C-H-I-C-O dot E-D-U slash C-O-R-H. I want to point out that the opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect those of the faculty and staff of our department. We're increasingly online. I am increasingly recorded. And that means that when I die, there are going to be so many videos and sound. Yes, absolutely. We could do a whole interview with you once you're dead. <laughs>